at that point now have commercial production experience, imaging yes. experience, mixing experience. I mean, you really have all it's aspects perfect of perfect timing for me to stop practicing law. Yeah. <laughs> 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 because, because by then you realize, oh my God, this is one of the most unstable uh, industries I could have possibly been attached to. I got to get out. <laughs> Town President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> I'm really excited to welcome someone today who is not only, I think, uh, just an incredible person and someone who gives so much to our industry, but also someone who's become just a dear friend of mine over the last few years. I'd like to welcome Yaman Koskin, the founder and CEO of Yaman Creative, uh, based in Washington, D.C. Yaman is an advertising specialist. He's got over 35 years of creative success stories, uh, and he's worked for legendary stations uh, like Philly's Power 99 FM, Q102, DC's Hot 99.5, and Big 100. Uh, today, his creative tools, Cash by Creative and SpecBite, are used in over 530 markets. And before I let him speak, I, I was golfing, and Yaman and I both share golf uh, in common, both have a passion for it and love it. And uh, an analogy I'd like to share, I feel... Like I'm a pretty decent uh, creative mind and I like to, to brand and talk about uh, pro promotions and marketing and so forth. And when I think I've said or come up with something really bright, I will then go and listen to Yaman and I realize to myself, it's like, oh my God, he's just at a completely different level when it comes to creativity. And the golf analogy is like when you hit a really good drive and a guy like Yaman and myself, if we really connect and there's a, a downwind and uh, the, uh, the, the hole is, uh, is uh, downhill, maybe we can get it down 230, 240 yards. And then a pro comes along and crushes it 350, 375. That's how I feel Yaman is. I can hit the ball 225, 230, and Yaman, uh, when it comes to creativity, just crushes it. 400 yards, you really are just the amongst the most creative people I, I know and uh, just an inspiration. So, Yaman, welcome and thank you so much uh, for coming to the show. I am sweating in embarrassment right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am so thankful, so grateful um, for your kind uh, comments. Um, I think people who specialize in certain fields, whether it's, you know, creative or you're a, a pianist or you are an athlete, the ones who are really good at it never really focus on how good they are at it. Actually, they often focus on how much more room they have to grow. So, when I, you know, when I hear a trusted friend like you introduce me the way you do, I honestly genuinely am embarrassed, but also I immediately think of all the uh, people that I have grown up, you know, admiring. Um, so in our field, you know, when I look at the creative legends from, you know, Dick Orkin um, to, you know, Roy Williams and, you know, all these brilliant minds who understand not just, I mean, if you want to stick with the golf analogy, not just understand the swing and where the ball goes, but all the technicalities behind it, all the mechanics behind it. There's a science to what they do. You know, so, like when it, when it comes to reading Roy Williams articles, I have to read them two or three times just to digest and process and understand because they're brilliant. 
But, um, you know, I guess that's my long-winded way of saying thank you for an amazing introduction. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm only as good as those who have similar passions or as engaged in what we do for a living. And you're one of those guys. So thank you. You're, you're welcome. And I mean it wholeheartedly, the way that you come up with ideas and the way that you're able to articulate those ideas, uh, it really just, it blows my mind. I mean, you are a modern day Don Draper. I could, and we'll get into this more, but I could really see you working or running an advertising agency off of, off of Madison Avenue and the creativity that just comes out of your mind. Was that something you were drawn to early on as, as a child? Uh, hang on a second. I just had a rush of blood to my ego. Okay. <laughs> All right. I need to lie down for a second. Okay, I'm good. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to give you exactly four hours to stop talking like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, honestly, I mean, not to get uh, too deep in the weeds here, but as a kid from like age four, five, all the way till about 11, 12, I wanted to be a doctor. Really? Yes, I, I wanted. I walked around with a little uh, briefcase full of uh, paraphernalia that resembled uh, tools that a medical person would that have. That is so cute. I never knew this. <laughs> and I used to go to mom, dad, and family members and relatives and guests, and you know, listen to their chest, ask them to cough. But that's as far as I went. So. <laughs> um, and then somehow, from thirteen on, uh, fourteen, fifteen. Uh, we used to live in uh, the suburbs of uh, Philadelphia called Upper Darby, and right up the street was a volunteer fire department. And if anybody's familiar with how volunteer fire departments operate in most traditional American towns, when they get a call, there is a siren that goes off on top of the roof. And I think yeah. to this day, they still exist. You know, it's like a, it's like a, a nuclear uh, war alert. You know, right. take shelter, but it's not. These are and every time I heard that, I would immediately put on my pretend um, fire coat and helmet and run outside, rain oh, or shine, that's adorable. Uh, you know, with a garden hose and just <laughs> respond to that, uh, respond to that sound. Ironically, while that ambition changed, fast forward to 2020, I, I actually, my wish came true. I am a fireman. Because when you're working with 500 plus radio stations, helping them develop revenue, <laughs> I am out there with my true. garden hose just that about is. every day. <laughs> so you grew up in Turkey, outside of Istanbul, or in yeah, Istanbul? in Istanbul? Yep. And you were a child actor, correct? Oh boy, this is going to be one of those, huh? Okay. It, it, well. It is, and I know a bit about this, obviously, because of our, our friendship, but yeah. Yaman was a very prominent actor as a child in, in Turkey before moving here I, to the I, States. Yeah, I don't know about the prominent part, but I think maybe we should go back to the beginning of this podcast and add a uh, Mission Impossible disclaimer that this podcast <laughs> will self-destruct in 30 seconds now that we're getting into some serious um, intel about my past. Yes, my, my dad was – you ready for this? This is the weirdest part um, – he was the publisher in the 50s and early 60s of a very popular magazine in Turkey called Radio. Go figure. It was called Radio. 
Right. It was called, that was the name of the magazine. And it was an entertainment magazine, but, you know, the primary source of entertainment, especially in the 50s, was radio in Turkey. TV came in mid to late 60s with one channel, black and white, until about mid-70s. So this is like an entertainment weekly type magazine. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, they were connected in the entertainment industry and know the producers and directors. You know, they said, oh, your your, your child is so cute. We should put him in a movie. (laughs) Not realizing how that would, uh, you know, turn me into a psychologically disturbed adult someday. But nevertheless, they went through with it. So I was in a bunch of movies from age seven till about, eh, you know, 16 or so. Was that something you, uh, you enjoyed doing, right? Well, at the time, sure. I mean, as a kid, you're like, oh, my God, it's so much fun. It's colorful, exciting, and you get all the attention and fun. And, um, you know, only years later, I wondered, wait a minute, I, I don't ever remember seeing a paycheck. <laughs> who, who took care of that? <laughs> but never questioned it at that time. Uh, but I think, you know, if you want to talk about the past, I think what is really relevant to what we're doing today and what we're discussing is uh, – with all due respect to my uh, attempt at acting career, is the fact that I used to take a pair of walkie-talkies, Radio Shack walkie-talkies, sure. and rubber tape one of them so the button would stay pushed in, right? Put that next to my turntables in my bedroom and then put the other one in my parents' bedroom. And before they went to bed, I used to broadcast music to them oh and gosh, talk. That's a- Pretending That's adorable. to be a DJ. So you did it. You gave them a show. Clearly, which were the <laughs> first uh, indications of again some kind of a psychological disturbance that would ultimately uh, provoke me to make a career out of radio. Now, your dad, being in the entertainment business and being a, a public a magazine publisher, and I'm assuming they were pretty supportive of the arts and creativity as a whole. Oh, absolutely, 100%, until we immigrated to the United States, which, ironically, June 1st was the uh, 40th anniversary. It was June 1st, 1980, oh, wow. when we, uh, my parents and I uh, settled in Philly. Yes, they were 100% supportive until right about early 1982, I started spending all kinds of crazy hours at this local radio station in Philly called Power 99 FM. Sure. And I would do, you know, edits and trying to remix songs and help with production for no money. Uh, There was no support then, my friend. (laughs) Zero. There was a lot of yelling and a lot of, you're a loser. You need to make something out of yourself. (laughs) What are you doing? You've spent 30, 40 hours at this damn radio station last week. What are you going to do with your life? There was a lot of that. But, you know, when I was... um, appointed to be the you know, the co-executive whatever of uh, uh, CSG, the Creative Services Group at iHeart back in 2004, I remember having the temptation to want to say to my parents, huh? Huh? How about it? How about them? <laughs> Finally get that, get that validation. <laughs> right. So when you move right. here from Turkey, how old are you at the time? Uh, I was 19. You were 19. Did you speak in English? Very basic, you know. It's it's kind of part of the curriculum in Turkey as you grow up. You know, you you're taught the basic grammar, but uh, no, not fluent. Was this something that you were you were pro? Were you excited to come here to the states, or did you have a lot of anxiety over it? 
there's a lot of mixed emotions. It's uh, it's very much like um, you know. I don't know, but it com- nothing compares to it. It was mixed. It was fifty anxiety, fifty percent anxiety, fifty percent. Uh, you know, oh wow, can't wait. What's adventure. your first job? At, and let me go back to Turkey really quickly. Were you ever into radio while you were there? Was that something that uh, caught your attention? Still back in Istanbul? No, but part of my acting career included uh, what at the time was called dub overs. Okay. Because all Western movies were dubbed over. Oh, sure, And there was sure. an industry of voice talent who did nothing but voices. Okay. <laughs> a little little better than the, the martial art movies that you see where <laughs> everything's out of sync. This was actually done pretty convincingly. You know, characters were matched nicely. Yeah. and trans- So instead of subtitles, uh, you know, it was dub over. So I, that was, I, I mean, that's as close as I got sure. to... Uh, you know, so we're actually audio. watching a couple shows now on Netflix, and being from the states, you don't get a lot of exposure to dub overs. But now there's some big international shows that are dubbed over here in English. Right. So I don't know if right. you've seen Fada, which is done in uh, Israel, and then there's another show called Money Heist, which I think is out of Mexico. And so I'm I'm very now familiar with with dub overs. So and that's you actually, right. yeah, that's it really it really is. But you know what's yeah. funny is you notice it for like the first episode, and it's like really kind of apparent. But then once you get into it, it just kind of goes away. You don't even think about it any longer. There was definitely some fascination. I mean, I, I only came to recognize that when I started looking at photo albums from my childhood and my goodness gracious one out of every 10 picture i'm i'm you know how most normal people have their pictures taken at a vacation by a cool car with friends sure not me all my pictures are in front of a turntable it's <laughs> next to a cassette deck so uh, it's uh, you know headphones on right <laughs> right that's I remember we had a co- we had conversation right. about this, and your parents like to entertain quite a bit, correct? And you yes, guys would have did. parties, oh, and, and yeah, sure yeah, and uh, so you kind of grew up with a lot of people in the arts and uh, right. actors and so forth. Right. And remind right. me, what did your mother do? She was a retired school teacher. Okay, um, so she, you know, once they got married, she wasn't working, and her uh, career was being a socialite. <laughs> Which is which is a good career, and then also supportive of you. I'm sure driving you around and getting. Oh you yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was. She was. That, that's a good point. Actually, she was my agent. Yeah. Really. I mean, she was definitely yeah. the stage manager. And Yaman downplays it, but he went back to Turkey a couple of years ago with his family, and you were checking into a hotel, and I believe that someone recognized you at the hotel and was very shy, uh, but came over and asked for your autograph. Well, the the weird part is until the internet came around. I did not know what had happened because I had not gone back. We had no relatives, we had no friends. So once we moved on, we moved on, right? So that was 1980. Well, it's the mid to late 90s. Suddenly I'm seeing these, you know, things online about one of the, like there were about a dozen movies I was in, but one of those movies became a cult movie. And it was a kind of a low-budget you know, no, but no one would ever guess. It was sort of Star Trekish, you know, in the '60s, getting canceled, and oh my God, right. it's not going to go anywhere. And then, you know, a decade later, it becomes a global culture. This movie apparently became so huge that it it superseded the the borders of Turkey. It was being reran on channels throughout the Europe markets, That's wild. and I'm like, what the heck? So, because of that one particular movie. 
um, and I was, you know, a supporting actor in it. It just every cast member who were still living, you know, became a, a common topic, like the news fillers. That's... You always get, Yaman Koskin, where is he now? <laughs> well, he's an executive in radio business in the United States. Oh, oh my. Really? That's wild. Slow news day. That is wild. It's yeah, too it bad. I'm, I'm sure you could be uh, do the Comic Con circuit back in uh, in Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I hope not. <laughs> so you're now you moved to the states. Did, why did your parents choose Philadelphia? Uh, you know, I'm not sure to this day. I wish to God they had chosen San Francisco or San Diego <laughs> or Florida. Please, anywhere where there's just you know sunshine most of the year. But uh, for some, yeah, I mean, I'm being facetious, uh, but uh, Philly really became uh, home. And, uh, you know, since 2001, as you know, we're in D.C., but when my family and I are driving to Philly to visit uh, my wife's family, we still, all these years later, we still say we're going home. No kidding. For some reason, we've never mm-hmm. used that line when we're driving back to D.C., <laughs> yeah. so, so driving right. 95 south, we never nobody, no one really talks. But, but driving 95 north, we go up, we're going home. So that's yes. Philly does that to you, you know. So that's you. That's where you identify your your, your home being as Philly. Yeah, it's Philly's home, and there's nothing wrong with DC. Yeah. It's an incredible area, but um, compared to cities like Philly, St. Louis, Chicago, you know. I mean, you want to go where everybody knows your name. Sure. I know where I got that <laughs> line from. But uh, that's how it is in those cities. I know your dad was a really hard worker and instilled a, a big work ethic. So you get to Philly, and pretty much right when you get there, you start working. And mm-hmm. was it a department store? Am I correct? Am I remembering this properly? <laughs> yes. What did you do at the department store? Well, I was the only male salesperson working at Macy's, Evan Picone department, which really, for those of us who uh, may not be familiar with that uh, uh, brand, it's a very conservative business suit, okay. yuppie kind of a Like a Perry uh, Ellis or, yeah. I mean, kind of. Or yeah. I remember the Charter Club, I think it was called, all these yeah. monogrammed sweaters. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That kind of thing. Me- Members so, only. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was a... Um, I don't think my wife will be listening to this podcast. She's very busy <laughs> taking care of things, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It was an extremely lucrative first job, um, and the money was good, too. Hey, waiter, check, please. <laughs> you've got, you've got, Yaman's a very attractive man. You're exotic. You come from uh, a foreign country. You've got an accent, and I'm sure in Philadelphia that was something that was pretty exotic. You know, I'm beginning to think that there might be some kind of a bromance developing between <laughs> us that may be way ahead of what I think. And yeah, I think maybe, the audience will think that yeah, too. Maybe Elizabeth should be concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think everyone at this point would know both of us should be concerned, including your wife. <laughs> so you're working at the department store and at the same time you start doing mixes for the local station, right? Right. Right. So um uh, apparently nobody <clears throat> had a, a, a concept of what sounds cheesy and what doesn't. So they decided to brand these remix shows that I was doing for Power 99 FM as Yaman Supermixes. Yaman Supermixes. Now, we just talked about Philly, right? And how, you know, there's a sense of neighborhoods and people know each other and there's loyalty. And, I mean, you know this all too well. There are also 
a, a number of markets throughout the country that have an incredible loyal uh, radio listener base. And I think when it comes to uh, urban format, that really manifests itself even with more power. You know, if you have an urban video station in a market, small, medium, or large, that's on the money, that's delivering the music, the format, the content, you will have generations of listeners you will consider P1s. Sure. Power 99 FM was like that. And as a result, it is 2020 for crying out loud. 40 years later, there are still people in Philly who vividly remember uh, the brand Yaman Supermixes because uh, there was nobody else doing it. It was a big deal at the time. The only person who ever came anywhere close to it was a guy named Shep Pettibone out of New York uh, doing remixes on 98.7 The Kiss. They used to call them Master Mixes, which, by the way, where I stole the idea from. And so these Yaman Supermixes just exponentially grew and, and, and became huge to a point where Tower Records would contact Power 99 FM go, do you guys, are you planning to release this, these? Because we're sick wow. and tired of uh, responding to people and telling them we don't have Yaman Supermixes. They would stores. actually go into the record store. They and would, ask. yes. So, and, and remember, the whole idea was you have a record in high rotation that does its job for three, four, five, six weeks, and it's beginning to burn out. Just at that burnout threshold, I would do a remix of it, which would then extend its life, number one, uh, you know, making uh, sure. obviously a lot more useful for the PDs, but also the exclusivity of it. So if you have a competing radio station uh, playing Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, Power 99 FM is playing the same song, but it's the remix version right. that can only be heard on Power 99 FM. So there were strategic advantages to it at the time that I wasn't. Yeah, I guess sure. so up it, enough to figure out this point. You're just, I mean, how did you learn to do these mixes in the first place? Do you remember all those pictures I told you taken in front of cassette decks? Right. <laughs> I realized a couple of times accidentally hitting the pause button while I was recording uh -huh. that I can get creative with that. I can like start doing things. Remember, this is pre splice tape and razor blade and sure. cutting blocks. Right. No pro tools so, or. Right. No, 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 no. Right. I'm using the pause button of a Radio Shack cassette player to manipulate uh, four bars or eight bars or a full verse of a song. That's on Trying to create a remix. And then, of course, as soon as I set foot inside Power 99 FM, a nice production director there introduced me to splice tapes and razor blades. And, and that's at that when point, life changed. Sure, that's and amazing. Then I, yeah. Who gave you who gave you your first opportunity? Did you come in initially to power with one of your mega mixes, or and just go, hey, take a listen to this? How did that whole process happen? Uh, the name of the man, whom of course I can never forget, uh, because of the opportunity he gave me, uh, was Jeff Wyatt. Jeff oh, wow, Wyatt sure. was the program director of Power Ninety Nine FM, uh, who was the darling of the industry. Uh, who then moved on to LA and, and programmed um, here, Kiss. Yeah, yeah, Kiss. Incredible and voice Six. Yep, absolutely. And to this day, he's, uh, uh, I don't know about being the darling of the industry, but he's the darling of everyone who knows him. An amazing man, a father, a husband, a wonderful friend. So he was responsible. Um, and sometimes on certain days, I don't know whether to send him a thank you note or anthrax. <laughs> 
he had he had the foresight, and that must have yeah. been a you know to get your first break in Philly, uh, you know, major market uh, without any real radio experiences. Right. What an amazing right. opportunity that that My favorite reaction always was, you know, I used to do club gigs. So when my parents were yelling at me for not getting compensated for working at Power 99 FM, I used that Yaman Supermix brand to secure gigs at nightclubs in Philly, as well as on behalf of Power 99 FM. Oh. So if Power 99 FM is doing a remote, they would run promos. Says, By the way, Yaman the Supermixer will be doing a live show. Oh. at the granite run mall and my favorite reaction always was audience coming up and say you yaman get get out you white get out of here (laughs) i love that it's so awesome so i mean you know urban radio format is therefore and has always been and will always be extremely near and dear to my heart because that's how I fell in love with radio. Sure. And that's, you know, so, you know, I, I mean, my number one choice on, uh, you know, satellite radio, uh, when I get in the car and hit my, you know, press my number one button, it's groove radio because those, that's, that's, right. that's the Reminds music. You, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my God. That's, that's what, that's the power nine FM I mean, playlist from the eighties. So from power, you go to Q102. Right, so from power, well, not there's a lot that happened in between, but from uh, power, I kind of trying to figure out my way. It's like, where am I going from here? I mean, I start asking the questions to myself that my parents have been asking me all throughout the 80s. Okay, what now? Where do I go from here? While trying to find myself there, another dear friend uh, who also um, was working with me at Power 9 FM, a local uh, radio personality in, in Philly, Frank Zerami. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank uh, um, is also one of those like you. He's a gem. He's he's a heart of gold, uh, but he's he's got the brains to go with that too. So while I'm just going, hey, what do I do now? Another nightclub gig? <laughs> Frank had the foresight to say, hey, you know what? We should we should start like a little production company and start helping out local clients and whatever so he converts his basement into a a beautiful studio and buys this software called pro tools oh wow and as you all know i don't care how you know forward thinking you may be it's just primal for us to reject change sure right uh so i was like fuming i'm like dude the hell is wrong with you? Where's my razor blade? <laughs> Where's my spice tape? What the hell? Where's hey. my reel-to-reel machine? Hey. <laughs> Please stop this madness. Three months later, I was pl- flying on Pro Tools like I've been using it for ten years, and this was, um, say like. 88, 89, right. something like really, that. Really, yeah, sure. Really early days. That yeah. would take like oh. a half, it would take an, a half an hour for the computer to boot up, too. <laughs> <laughs> when, he, when, when he hit the save button, yeah. you would actually like take a vacation with your family yeah. for a week and come back and just, and like, okay, it's and not say, saving. And say, and say a little prayer that it didn't crash <laughs> and lose right. all of your, all of exactly. your work. Hey, listen, we used to back everything up that we did on Pro Tools to either reel to reel or a few years later. Remember that? 
sure dat sure. machines yeah so everything yep. had to be backed up to dat yeah. <laughs> you know so that was uh, the big conversion that was the big turning point uh, really in my uh creative career and production career and note that i'm saying creative career because frankly that technology for most uh enhanced and improved people's creative careers it put it on steroids because suddenly you could do what you were thinking and what you were hearing you could do it within 10 minutes Right. Versus, you know, 10 hours in the old days. All of a sudden, like uh, when Galileo finally had a telescope to be able to look through. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it was a huge, uh, huge transition and a huge evolution. And uh, and that was it. From there, we did that, you know, studio together. Then we took it out of the basement. I actually went to Center City, Philadelphia. And Frank successfully opened a great business. I continued to work with him. Frank still does it to this day. Oh, no kidding. So um, when you yeah. were working with Frank... Were you guys now working on a, a commercial production or are you yes. still – how did that – so when did you realize – because you're doing the Yom and Mega mixes and you're on more of the programming side. When did you realize you had a knack, an interest in client relations and commercial production and really being a creative director? Uh, that's a very intelligent question. Uh, but at the time, I um, really didn't even think of that. I mean if I had, I just – try to give you an answer right now that's as intelligent as your question. Right. At the time, it was like, great, man. Something else to do that's kind of related to the uh, field. And actually, I'm making money for it. Frank is paying me. This oh, so you weren't cool. got it. So you weren't getting paid still for the mega mixes. That was something yeah, you yeah, kind of super mixes, right? Oh, sorry, the super um, mixes. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. They were, they were. I mean, at at that point, Power Nine Nine FM was pretty much saying, "Hey, dude, we, yeah, you know, we gave you the name." Right. And look, now you're securing all these club gigs. Clubs, you're welcome. Uh, by the way, come in and help us with some dubs next Sunday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that was that was the arrangement. But right. with this thing with Frank, uh, I was really getting excited about it because I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm 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 elevating myself from you know um, DJ boots and sticky floors and liquor and working till two three in the morning versus. Hey, put on uh, put on a clean shirt and show up at right. nine a.m. and eleven a.m. You have a client coming in. Oh wow! Pretty and cool. were you working? Uh, you were obviously doing the production part of it, but were you also helping with the copywriting and actually? Yeah, I, yes, I was. Uh, um, I was a creative director for uh, Frank's company, so I was developing Which, copy, concept, and production. Right. Further blows my mind because you obviously your native language what language is Turkish, and so. Yeah. You are a few years in, and now you've learned English so well that you're able to use it for creative, which is not, I, I got to imagine, not easy to do. It's my first you know, language, I and I can't I, do it. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. I don't publicly tell uh, people the secret, but uh, it, it was Sesame Street. <laughs> Every morning, I'd watch Sesame Street, and then at night, I would watch Nightline with Ted Koppel. Are you serious? So, somewhat. I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, if, if when you bring a foreigner into this country, you, you, you can put him through a course for three weeks that teaches English, um, or park him in front of the television set for three weeks, chances are they're going to end up learning more from that audiovisual right. teaching than they do from the academic approach to teaching somebody the language. And honestly, t t TV was very helpful. 
both radio and TV. That's amazing. Uh, number one. Number two, that you know, you know how annoying former uh, smokers can be, or former, you know, because they're when you're in their presence and you're, you know, puffing away or you're drinking away, they right. may not say that to you, but there's always that sense of judgment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So because they've worked so hard to achieve something that is pretty incredible and very impressive, so they have to work three, four times harder than you. To get to that point, well, remember Jeff White? Sure. I used to beg him, plead with him to put me on the air. And he said, yeah, that's cute, Yaman, but you have an accent, dude. Right. That doesn't work, especially in the 80s, like having an accent on the air. I mean, Hispanic accent would have been okay, but what the hell is that? Turkish accent? What is that? So I found myself having to master the English language um, much harder and probe much deeper and become one of those annoying, judging um, (laughs) people trying to, you know, just embrace the command of the language. And I'm the guy who, you know, um, picks on people right now and go, hey, man, that that apostrophe doesn't belong there. You know that, right? That's that's really, (laughs) it's incredible. That's so, so impressive. Do you think that your acting background helped with that to some degree because you don't sense much of an accent well i think with the, the acting background has helped with the ability to bs <laughs> <laughs> which, which certainly comes very handy from time to time <laughs> but um, um no i mean honestly there you know there there are a couple of things that i've done in my life uh, that i feel pretty close to right uh coming to america was one um uh, marrying my uh, incredible wife was one. Um, having the nerve to quit my cushiony job at iHeart in 2007 and start Yaman Air was one. And I think in re- retrospect, um, um, really uh, adapting in ways that uh, I would have never imagined, which includes mastering the command of the language and then mastering the art of how to use that language to pursue persuade people effectively which is what advertising is all about um yeah i think i i can look at look back at that and not necessarily be overly humble about it i am proud of it because i i really put in the sweat equity you know i read a lot listened a lot absorbed a lot and um ultimately i think you got to have some natural gift to simulate imitate and then execute and um, that's what ended oh, up happening with that. You, you certainly yeah. have. I mean, honestly, have... God, um, sometimes I give myself reality checks when I get off stage at some you know major radio event, getting up there talking to hundreds of people about effective creative and execution and proper copy. And then you know I get up and I go, what the hell? Didn't you just get off the boat in 1980? <laughs> <laughs> now you're here preaching to people? What the hell? Is it? But that's, I mean... Rather than self-judging, I think that's more of a, a gratefulness opportunity for me yeah. to say, thank you, God. Thank you for you know giving me this it's, gift because I, I got nothing else. It's a, certainly an American dream, and I'll, I want to get more into the, the company here um, in, in a few minutes, but you've absolutely – just you know, seize that opportunity, and I, I have no doubt that you were given some God-given uh, gifts. 
but you also just have, you know, worked your tail off and that persistence of constantly going to Jeff and getting him to listen to your mixes and, right. uh, you know, begging him right. to put you on air. And, uh, I've got so much respect for that. And so in a lot of ways you've made, you know, you've made your own destiny. So you're with Frank and you're doing commercial production. And now this is right. really your first foray into what would eventually become Yom and Air. And right. then from there is when you go to Q102? Uh, no, uh, yes, 1989, uh, Frank was asked to accept the position of music director Okay. at Q102, which was a big top secret. Frank is at an undisclosed location uh, somewhere you know, in New Jersey, right. carting up music. Yeah. I said carting up music. And, um, <laughs> and degaussing uh, uh, tapes. <laughs> <laughs> degaussing tapes. <laughs> And cleaning heads with a Q-tip soaked in alcohol, <laughs> gently. So uh, he, and meanwhile, I'm in L.A., uh, living in Santa Monica, partying my head off and still nudging Jeff Wyatt uh, because I kind of, you know, I'm like the stalker. So I right. kind of chase him to L.A. and go, hey, 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 can I get a gig at Power 106? Is there anything I can do? Maybe we can study Yaman Supermix here. And he's like, he's like swatting me away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so Frank calls me and says, hey, you want to come back to Philly and, and help us out with, the, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, I ain't going anywhere in L.A., so why not? So hop on a plane, get back to Philly. So let's back up really quick, and I apologize for leaving that out. Tell us about coming out to L.A. Well, coming out to L.A. was really with that intention. Hey, if I maybe get a part-time gig somewhere, whatever, be closer to Jeff. Jeff is my man. He's my mentor. I love I him. See. Um, maybe he'll give me the time of the day. I was Are dead wrong. What, when you made <laughs> When you made that move, were your parents like, oh, my God? Or were they pretty supportive? Uh, at that it? point, I think they had pretty much given up. <laughs> like, this guy's out of control. He's, he's gone. You know? um, we should have never so, have left Turkey. <laughs> so suddenly I find myself in a place where uh, I lost the musical chairs game. My parents have given up on me, and Jeff Wyatt is ignoring me and avoiding me like the coronavirus. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that's it. Now what do I do? And then this phone call comes from Frank. Frank, hey, and he's I'm like, carting up music in uh, you know some undisclosed location for this new radio station. Uh, oh, really? Uh, have you ever heard of Mark Driscoll? Nope. Have you ever heard of Elvis Duran? Nope. All right. Well, you will <laughs> see you when you get back. And that was it. 1989. We launch uh, Q102. What the hell? Here's another hit. So it's Mark Driscoll. Comes Elvis yeah. Brandon. I mean, tell me about that. Obviously, just oh, superstars geez. in in the business. Oh, goosebumps. Yeah. Goosebumps. I mean, I remember I was board hopping uh, the first two, three weeks. There were no air personalities. Remember that? When we sure. flip a format, you just yeah. music wall to wall. I remember playing Millie Vanilli. <laughs> you know, girl, you know it's true. So every time that song comes on today, I still get goosebumps that, that you know, how music can do that so sure. powerfully. Instantly, I'm back in that uh, studio in, in, in Ballack-Kenwood uh, the first couple of weeks of Q102. Incredible. Unbeknownst to me that it would one day become a, a legendary yeah. station like Power 99 did. Unreal. And so it's just the Crazy. like electricity is just running through the building at that point. Oh, unbelievable. And this Mark Driscoll, uh, I mean, uh, as far as we're concerned, uh, that's not a man. 
that is uh, God walking the hallways. You know, we are in the presence of a supreme being. Huge, huge. And then this guy, this talk about creative mentors, creative power, a guy named David J, who is doing the imaging for sure. Pumano 2, whom um, uh, Mark Driscoll basically brought him because, you know, him and Mark Driscoll were right, from, working came, together. From Florida, right? They were down in... Yeah, um, I believe yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and I'm watching David J on the 8-track <laughs> making his magic and putting these imaging pieces together. And I'm like, uh, my jaw is on the... F- I am just in awe watching him. Going, is this really happening? Am I really part of this? Huge. So there is a massive influence in my creative rhetoric, generally speaking, whether it's for imaging or commercial production to this day that I picked up during that powerful period that has become permanently embedded in my heart and in my mind. I mean, to be mentored by I, uh, Jeff Wyatt, uh, mm-hmm. Mark Driscoll, D- David J, and Elvis Duran, I mean, what radio a gods. foundation. These are radio yeah. gods, truly. Yeah, truly. absolutely. So from there, fill me in a little bit how things kind of grow. Uh, You're at that point now have commercial production experience, imaging experience, mixing experience. I mean, you really have all aspects. Perfect timing for me to stop practicing law. (laughs) 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 Because because by then you realize, oh my God, this is one of the most unstable uh, industries I could have possibly been attached to. I got to get out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, all right. So the Cuba to thing um, lasts until I think I'm there like 92-ish or so. And right about that time uh, is when Frank really picks up. That's when the move to Center City begins to happen and the production is now um, accelerating. He's picking up more clients. And so this thing is now beginning to... You know, the ground is galvanized enough and we, we spread enough fires that it's beginning to catch on right now. And it's it's fun. 95. I don't know if this happened to you yet. Um, if it hasn't, it will. <laughs> there comes a time in your life when you just pause everything and you begin to question everything. I mean, everything. Who the hell you are? Why did you get here? Why did I move? What did I do? Uh, where do I go from here? What have I changed? You know, who am I? All those sure. stupid questions that, uh, uh, you know, usually uh, end as soon as you get a box of edibles. Uh, but <laughs> I, we didn't have that. At the, this is 95, so um, I, I didn't have that. So I'm, I'm lost. I suddenly am questioning everything, and I'm no longer convinced that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, except I have no idea what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. So I begin to entertain the thought of re-engaging what I used to do when I was a kid, acting. No kidding. So I decide it's time for me to permanently get out of radio, pack it up, I'm moving to L.A., and I'm going to become one of those uh, idiots uh, waiting tables uh, until you know somebody discovers me. Pipe dream. No reality check, 100% emotional, no logic, no rationale, nothing. Jump on a plane, go to L.A., 
Guess whose house I'm staying at? Jeff White. Guessed it, <laughs> of course. And uh, and we have a mutual friend. His name is Chris Leary. Lear Jet, they used to call him another radio guy from sure. the Power Nine. I is so I go to visit him. He lives in Northridge, and uh, I he opens the door. He goes, man. He goes, what a weird day. I go, what's up? He goes, I have two friends from my childhood days or growing up days in Philly visiting me on the same day. I go, why? Who else? He goes, here. We walk in the kitchen. It's this gorgeous girl tossing salad and cutting a loaf of bread in the kitchen. And Chris goes, Yaman, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Yaman. And then he turns to me. He goes, whatever you do. Do not hit on her. She's a fan. <laughs> Our families know each other, okay? She's just fitting. She's she just came out of a broken up engagement. She's really vulnerable. She's on the rebound. Yeah, just be nice, okay? <laughs> Naturally, I immediately start hitting on her uh, within a matter of like minutes after that conversation. And that was uh, April 97, uh, April, uh, Christmas 98. Uh, by Christmas 98, we were married. I love that story. You've told me that Found once before. Found my soulmate. Found my soulmate in Northridge, California. Go figure. <laughs> at Learjet's house. And That's you, right. She didn't throw any kitchen knives at you or anything. No, not not till about three, four years into the marriage. <laughs> so that whole, um, you know, I'm lost. I need to re-engage my acting career crap obviously came to a screeching halt when I realized that what I was truly missing <laughs> was my soulmate. So we settled. And then, lo and behold, I get a call from a guy named Glenn Kalina at Q102. <laughs> he goes, hey, we have an opening. We can use a good, talented production director. Are you in? I'm like, dude, I, I love you. And I would love to come back to radio, but just got married. Things, you know, are stable. I think, I think I'm okay. About an hour after uh, that conversation, naturally, I was um, on my way to Q102 to see what my studio is going to look like and where my <laughs> office was going to be and sign the paperwork to start on Monday. Uh, look, any anybody who's listening to this who passionately is engaged in radio and loves radio, to them, it's like, yep, no brainer. I, I saw sure. that coming. That's inevitable. It's, <laughs> it's in our blood. There's just it's, something absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So jump to the Q102. Um, uh, continued that um, until um, and, the management change happened. And now you're at Q102 as a full-on production director. Yeah, full-on product, creative services director. Yes. See, that's yes. so, very interesting to me that you've had both sides, both the programming, um, creative programming side and the creative production side, because generally, as you know, there's sometimes this, unfortunately, this wall that's down the middle of a radio stations and programming's on one side and sales is on the other side. And you really bridge that divide and were able to bring in, I think, both crafts and it's probably a large reason for your creative success. That is an excellent point you make, which, by the way, is... Uh really the final uh, chapter of this story to brings us to this day. Uh, because it, what you just said, that gap, that bridge, was where the opportunity uh, lied, except no one had touched it until about 2004 while I was at iHeart. <clears throat> so um, the Q102 thing uh, comes to a screeching halt while I'm in my own euphoria saying, 
oh my God, look at this. It's 1999. I am doing today what I was drooling over uh, watching David J do right. you know, 10 years ago. Right. And here I am now doing it. How cool is this? This is fantastic. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, management change happens. And I think anyone who's in the We've industry all been knows there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what happens next. So I find myself on my butt on the street and, and just got married. Right. And I'm going, all right, that's it. I am so done with radio. I mean, I mean, done. Okay. <laughs> Firmly done. Not, nah, maybe I might go back if somebody, no, 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 yeah. I'm done. <laughs> and I meant it. Immediately um, spent whatever money I had in my savings on getting, buying a computer, Pro Tools, microphone, blah, blah, set it up in my basement. And I started um, this weird name at the time, but they, I, you know, people said you should do that because you already have a name in Philadelphia, so you might as well capitalize on it. So I called it Yaman Air. One word. Yeah, don't go on the air, go on Yaman Air. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, Cute. Uh, and start that. I immediately pick up some accounts, mostly are nightclubs, actually, uh-huh. because I'm already DJing in nightclubs in Philadelphia at a place called Egypt on the Waterfront, uh, Aztec Club, the huge strip called Delaware Avenue in Philadelphia where the uh, clubs are exploding. That's the big scene. Um, and that's it. 2001, uh, May 2001, we have a baby. I'm like, oh my God, like, okay, this is, I can see how this is all going to work out. We're in the cute little suburbs of Philadelphia. I got my mm-hmm. little basement production going. Sure. My wife is working. It, this is all good. Ah, radio, distant memory, and we move on. The end, credits are rolling. And then everything stops. Credits begin to reverse. <laughs> the camera pans to the left to the phone. The phone is ringing. And it's damn Jeff Wyatt on the oh phone calling God. from Washington, D.C. <laughs> and he goes, hey, um, a buddy of mine, uh, Bennett Zier and I are um, launching a new CHR in Washington, D.C. called Hot 99.5. How would you like to... No! <laughs> <laughs> yes. That, that, dr- that drug dealer calling you after you've just given it on, up. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my, it's like, it's like it's Groundhog Day. So, uh, of course, the answer was a flat out no, followed by an immediate uh, listing of our property, packing <laughs> up the suitcases, putting our baby in one of the suitcases, and heading down to D.C. And that was 2001. We launched Hot 995. And, and right um, around 9-11, correct? Oh, yeah. It was literally a month before 9-11 is when uh, Clear Channel put us up in D.C. And then that happened, followed by the anthrax, followed by the D.C. sniper. So I'm going, yeah, yeah, these are all good omens. I'm so glad we made right. this relocation. <laughs> Things are working out great. Maybe a mountain will erupt. We'll have a volcano or something <laughs> soon. And it'll, it'll all be over. And then I never have to worry about getting another phone call for a new video mm-hmm. gig. Now you're down so, there. Sibel's only a couple years old. Um, are, did you have second thoughts about going back to Philly? No. Uh, at no. that point, first of all, we, I mean, I dove head first into this whole Hot 995 project. Um, and, uh, and then this is where today's story begins. Because there we um, created an arrangement where I would be imaging Hot 995 while helping out the sellers on their key accounts 
for a couple of commission points. So the employment agreement they cut with me was, this is, you know, what you get paid for imaging us. But if you, if your creative help secure business for sellers, then you get like a point or two commission. Really? In retrospect, that was a brilliant idea. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. I didn't know either, but I got very excited because I saw the potential of how that would work. And that's when the gap, the bridge you were talking about, that's when I started that bridge becoming a critical bridge because we've always had imaging people, uh, you know, they're the low handicap golfers. Sure. And then you had the production directors, uh, they're high handicap golfers. Yeah. They didn't really play together. You're absolutely right. And the opportunity for the imaging people to use that incredible talent, that rhythmic production perspective that they have where things move and flow beautifully and succinctly messages are executed and it matches the format beautifully Mm -hmm. because it's what we call the stationality. Imagine those guys sharing their toys with the production department and begin to help each other instead of being this, you know, church and state separation. Right. And, and boy, did it begin to pay off very quickly, very handsomely. So go ahead. Was that Jeff Wyatt's idea? That was a, that was an offspring of a discussion that I had with Jeff White that if I'm going to make this kind of a major relocation for the first time in my life, really with my family, blah, blah, that there'd have to be some incentive in it that enables me to not be 100% rely on programming. Yeah. Because I had already learned after almost 20 years how uh, volatile that can be. Uh, ratings dropped, uh, the management changed, uh, the, the new PD doesn't like the way you wear your hair, you know, whatever. So I said, if I have some connection to the sales department, that gives me stability. Even in the programming goes to poop, I may still, you know, rely on that. So that was my thinking at the time, kind of a and primitive. But I think way ahead of its time. And just, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, br- brilliant. <laughs> I wouldn't lucky. expect anything less. No, brilliant. I, I, Brilliant model. So from there, how does CSG come to be? Uh, so when this arrangement began to, well, of course, we were tracking it, you know. Hey, in April, we secured this much money and made this. So I'm tracking the hell out of it on a spreadsheet. And at the time, uh, Clear Channel had a centralized kind of a voice share, okay. imaging share thing. Um put together by a a great guy, a very smart guy named Jim Cook. And Jim had already put this up and it was working. And all all of us, imaging people, I was working with Eric Chase, uh, Dave Campbell, uh, uh, some other guys. And like whenever there was a collective contest, uh, anything that's national that goes to all clear channel properties, we were sort of the team that assembled it together. So we'd contribute, we'd create the shells, put them up there. Sound familiar? Uh, very familiar. Very familiar. And again, Sound- way, way ahead of its time. I mean, for 15 years yes. ago, yeah. Yeah, this is this is 2002. Oh, geez, yeah. Okay, 2002, 2003. So by 2004, I start wondering, very quietly, haven't discussed it with anyone, 
if there is a site like this for imaging, why not create a site for commercial production that does exactly the same thing, but instead of production people being its audience, it's the sellers. So sellers go up and grab fully produced commercials where the front end is somewhat generic, but category specific, and they can customize the back end. So I start discussing this with Jim Cook, and Jim says, there is definitely something there, but let me take the lead, because he already had a pretty good relationship with John Hogan, and John had already seen the success that the imaging site had. So he says, ride my coattails, and we may be able to take it somewhere. And he kept his promise. He did. Amazing. So he took that idea, raw idea, uncooked idea that I shared with him, made it pretty, and got the approval from John Hogan for a budget to roll out CSG, the Creative Services Group, which we effectively did in 2004. And um, I don't know if you remember, but there were there were a lot of initiatives. Oh yeah, no, uh, I remember. Yeah. I remember well because I was at the company at that point here in LA, and this I absolutely one, remember that. Yeah, yeah this one. Uh, I mean, it really blew everybody away. Made a lot of money and. And uh, that was that was uh, that to me was a huge leap. It was a turning point. Well, no, gigantic because now you were local, major market, but to right. graduate into this huge national footprint, and now you're mm-hmm. dealing with people from across New York, LA, for Chicago. I mean, across the country. Huge. What was that overnight? What did that feel like? Uh, like a dream, because suddenly I went from being in the production room. Uh, to being in boardrooms and mm-hmm. hanging out with the executives and having breakfast with the maids and jumping on planes to do presentations and meet clients. And I'm like, is this really happening? <laughs> this is huge. And I was just besides myself. It was, you know, I was given a title. I'm like, oh my God, I have a title. What's the title again? Uh, executive Creative Coordinator. Oh, wow. Huge. <laughs> amazing. You know, you know here I mean, you've gone from literally with your little Radio Shack mixer making right. your uh, your Yaman uh, super mixes. Yaman super mixes to, uh, to that. Yeah. So incredible. And then, so that was 2005, 2006, 2007. Something unexpected happened. April 2nd, 2007, we had our second baby and that's not the unexpected part we were expecting that for nine months the unexpected (laughs) part was when i was holding this baby my son and i looked at him liam and and suddenly i got the that same feeling that most daddies do when they hold their baby um, that they think they're superman and they can pretty much conquer the world and change everything for good and uh and they're superman (laughs) So somehow, um, maybe I just dropped acid. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, somehow I turn around and I tell John Hogan and Jim Cook and all these guys that um, thank you, love you. This was absolutely a, a massive opportunity. But uh, with all due respect, I'm gonna I'm gonna bail out. And I'm gonna start my own gig. And just so you know, my own gig is going to use a very similar model as CSG. So I need your blessing. And I need your, so that, you know, 
and I just want to talk for a moment longer about that decision because that takes tremendous, tremendous guts. I'm sure you're making a good living. You've got two young children. Did anyone say to you, did Elizabeth go, are you out of your mind? Why are you giving this she up? She did. And She did at first, but then she was very supportive. And you're absolutely right. I mean, other than coming to America in 1980 and saying, I do uh, uh, at my wedding, this was by far the third scariest thing I had ever done in my life. And it was just looking at Liam and you had that epiphany. Let's do this. Yeah. And yeah. And, um, you know, this may go against, uh, the rhetoric, all that narrative that we've heard about, you know, clear child in the past, blah, blah, blah. But I have to tell you, they were incredibly human about it. hundred percent supportive. Um, and, uh, it was a very amicable separation. And I'm to this day very grateful for that because I learned a lot and I'm thankful to everyone that I work with, starting with Jim Cook, um, who was uh, a friend and a, and a mentor that um, helped me realize my dream and supported what I wanted to do, which was an initiative that ended up paying off for everyone. So um, took a month off, just loving my baby. And then I tossed the baby to Elizabeth <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then dove into my basement and started creating this little primitive uh, thing, working with a buddy of mine who at the time was uh, handling IT at Clear Channel. Um, and we uh, designed this kind of a primitive thing uh, called Cashback Creative. I was just thinking, you know why Jim Cook and everyone was so nice? Because they thought you were probably out of your freaking mind. And they're like, there's no <laughs> way. Like, oh, he'll, that's a great idea. That's a bye great bye. idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, he'll be back yeah. in a few months. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the door is closing. I'm getting into my car. And it's like, what is that roar of laughter? <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> so now so, yeah. you're building so now, this. Yeah, I'm building this. And just about I'm building. I'm, my mission is let me build this. If I, if I build it, they'll buy it. Well, I don't know. But right as I am you know, locked in the basement 12, 13, 14 hours a day, reaching out to some producers that I know and say, hey, man, can you create a spot but make it like generic in the front and then send me the shell? What's this about? I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to populate some categories so that there is something to show right. there. It's a lot of work. Right about that time, uh, it's announced in the trades that Dan Mason – has been appointed as the new CEO of CBS Radio. Okay. And I'm like, Dan Mason, Dan Mason, why do I know this? Why do I? And then, you know, I start looking him up and realize this guy doesn't come from sales. Right. He actually okay. comes from programming side. I'm like, ooh, wait a second. A radio guy and in, in the CEO position yeah, yeah. of CBS Radio? Oh, 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 I think I got myself a new Jeff Wyatt. <laughs> oh, this, oh, good. Uh, the oh, stalker man. strikes yeah. The Turkish stalker strikes again. So, Jeff Wyatt should have sent him the fly swatter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There should have been pictures of me. It's like, avoid this guy. Don't oh, let him man. in the building. So I start going after him, very gracious guy, class act, totally. Um, he says, look, um, I think my you know, right-hand person should see this. His name is Scott Herman. Show it to him. Let's see what happens. I'm going, Scott Herman. Hmm? I know who is. Well, I hope he's a nice guy. <laughs> so I jump on a train from D.C., go up to New York, 
going to the CBS corporate offices, pop up on my laptop, and I'm showing to Scott Herman, and he's got a poker face, kind of looking at it, and I'm and I'm saying to myself, oh, man, this is going to be a poop show. Do this, you understand, though, the you know, magnitude of this pitch at this point? Are you aware no, of, like, how no. big? No, I mean, I'm sweating, like, my like sweaty palms, and I'm, you know, nervous, but I'm trying to conceal it, trying to, you know, resurrect my childhood yeah. acting skills and trying to look appear calm. But no, no, I'm not. What I am doing is I'm leveraging the fact that, hey, you may have heard of me. I'm Yaman Kaskin, and I kind of co-authored CSG for iHeart, and they're probably going, who? What? <laughs> what did you do for a clear shaman? Not iHeart, clear shaman. So I'm trying to push that in the forefront to, to establish some credibility so that they understand that I'm not just some Tom, Dick, and Harry coming in there. It's like, hey, I have this kind of a cool production service. So one of the things that I was really emphasizing with Sky is that this is not a production service. This is a sales development tool. This is designed to acquire new business. And that's when his poker face started to change into a, a very engaged face. I literally wide Scott's eyes wide open looking at it. And I swear to you, to this day, I, whether he admits it or not, I almost felt like he was actually holding back. Like if he wasn't holding back, he was just going to turn to me and go, dude, give me a high five. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, look, take it and roll it out in D.C. and Baltimore. Let's see what happens. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, check it out in 60 days. Wow. I, I go, thank you very much. I'm shaking his hand. And I just couldn't hold back. You know me. I'm, yeah. This is why this whole social distancing is killing me because I'm a hugger. <laughs> you know, I love people and I love, I hug people. Um, so I give him a hug. And I see him kind of like taken back a little bit, but I also notice that he's one of us. Right. He's a cool dude. Yeah. So he kind of gets it and he's kind of laughing. <laughs> he goes, I'm glad you're excited. We're excited too. Let's see how it goes. Nicest guy on yeah. the face of the circle. And I'm going, how lucky am I? I must, I mean, I don't think anybody on the train on the way back to DC even came anywhere near me because they thought I was complete <laughs> nutjob because I was laughing. <laughs> All the way, I literally laughed for two and a half hours all the way back to DC. This huge grin on my face. I'm like, oh, I man. cannot believe I just got the okay to roll this out in DC and Baltimore. And we did. That was uh, October, uh, yeah, October, November, December. Fourth quarter, we rolled it out DC and Baltimore. Lo and behold, they made crap load of money. And, <laughs> and come 2008, Scott clears it to roll it out to all CBS markets, all 29 That's of them. Unbelievable, man. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah. and I mean, just, oh my God. What it's, were you able to, when that happened, landing that, going back to Scott? And I think the analogy there, um, you and I, both golfers, we're never going to win the Masters or the US Open. But when us being cut from the same cloth, winning that deal when Scott gave you that green light to try it in DC and Baltimore would be the equivalent of us winning a major, just that mm -hmm. feeling that elation, that excitement. Uh, there is nothing else quite like it. So well said. Um, and it's funny that you've, you know, I don't know if you've ever used that line before you started Benstown, you know what you just said, winning a deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you probably talked about, you know, 
uh, winning better rating, ratings. You talked about ratings. You talked about grooming your personalities and spending one-on-one with them. And the, but you probably never said winning a deal until you became a CEO of an incredible company like the one you run now. I never looked at it as winning a deal. I looked at it as, you know, at all the good things that happened to me in my life always had one common theme that there was always one person in the picture who said, okay, who said yes, mm-hmm. who supported, who, who was somehow positive. My brother at age six helped me get my headshots done and, and get my bio done to push it to the movie studios with my dad's encouragement and his connections. My brother was responsible, really, for me to get into that field as a kid. Your champion. 1982, Jeff Wyatt. Early 90s, Frank Cerami. Late 90s, Jeff Wyatt again. Uh, (laughs) Early, you know, uh, 98, 98, uh, whatever, uh, 2007, Scott Herman. So it wasn't winning a deal. It was just recognizing that when your heart is in in the right place and your motives are pure, someone somehow will show up and say, all right, Chach, we'll give it a shot. That's really good advice. I I think we are so, and I can speak to myself at least, and obviously what you just said, grateful of the people that have championed us throughout our careers because there's no doubt that we wouldn't be where we are today if it weren't. We can't. There's no no one, no one. I mean, Jesus had to have, you know, 12 disciples. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, from there. I mean, I'm going way back. You know, if I knew, if I had a personal relationship with some of the cavemen, I'd probably use those as <laughs> examples too. But at every achievement, there is either a person or a group of people who get behind you, who, who make you feel like there is validity to what you're doing or what you're saying, and we're willing to support it. Well, it makes sense. I mean, granted, obviously, what you propose or what you try to do, you know, has to have some aspect of it that people can have a buy-in on. Uh, but, you know, then again, you watch that incredible TV spot that, as you know, I use in my presentations all the time about Apple TV and you know, famous, you know, vilified, yeah. you know, the crazy, the ones who are crazy enough to think, uh, you know. So sometimes you have nobody. But but if you're that strong and you can go at it on your own, like Steve Jobs did, and kick butt, God bless him. Yeah. I'm not that strong. I needed somebody yeah. in my life at every aspect of my life, and I was lucky enough to uh, have one. And now, by the way, today it's you. <laughs> you're my you're my new victim. <laughs> Were you able to call your dad and your mom and uh, celebrate when you landed uh, the CBS agreement? Yes, hundred percent. At that point, 100%. did they fully understand that that their son had made it? They had no clue, but they knew something <laughs> good was going on. <clears throat> they could tell. You know, when you when you I mean, you know this when you love somebody. Uh, so much, so unconditionally. Sometimes you really don't give a damn about the uh, deep details. Right. You're just happy that they're happy. Happy. You know, sure it's like looking at your child. 
He looks happy. Makes me happy. Yeah. He probably just passed gas, and that's why he looks <laughs> yeah. so comfortable. But it's okay. Yeah, he looks happy. I'm happy. So, um, and the last uh, of the uh, story really uh, is, um, you know, if you want to look at these heroes that I just mentioned to you, yeah, from my brother, you know, to Jeff White, to Scott Herman, uh, you know, 2017. I think my last hero showed up. I don't think, uh, you know, I'm pushing 60 right now, so I don't think I'm going to have more uh, because I think, I, you know, <clears throat> the next ambition for me would be to, you know, have like Tiger Woods as my buddy. <laughs> but this, by, by the way, at uh, uh, on the golf course, uh, Yaman is known as the Turkish Tiger. That is his, uh, <laughs> yeah. his golf and by name, the way, which that's, I love. That has nothing to do with my performance. <laughs> yeah. um, but my last hero was a guy named Peter Kosan. Uh, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Compass Media Networks. And he's the one who played that role in my life in 2017 when they were already repping one of our services. And uh, he sensed that um, I'm always on the ideological side of this business, but not on the logistical side. I'm even reluctant to call it a business. To me, this is a passion and I was lucky enough to figure out how to make a living on it. But I love the creative part. I love the engagement with the humanity. And I hate everything that comes with having to run the business aspect of it. The HR, the taxes, yeah. the, the blah, 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 all that. So he sensed that. And, um, and he bought Yaman Air in 2017. So we, uh, we were acquired by Compass Media Networks. And it was a, a match made in heaven. There are, I mean, you, you think about a, a dream acquisition, a dream company that believes in loving people, committing people, being transparent with people, and supporting them genuinely without any ulterior motive. That's Compass Media. They are an amazing organization. And uh, my point about Yaman being the most creative person I know, I think Peter, I regard him as... I don't know if there's anyone that knows the business any better than Peter. He is so incredibly intelligent and he's been a confidant and a friend of mine for, uh, for, for many years and actually how we, we met, how Yaman and I met, uh, but, uh, just a, a great human being, um, Hiram, uh, Paul Gregory, just a great team that, uh, are over there at, at Compass. Yeah. And that's, that's the, you know, when you think about business, you know, business, business, whether it's radio business, uh, medical business, uh, you know, whatever. When you have a good human at the top, it, it just trickles down and, and it becomes the culture of that business. If you have a schmuck at the top, then the operation also reflects that in its culture. So it's, uh, you know, I wish we had more Jeff Whites. I wish we had more Scott Hermans. I wish we had more Peter Corsans. And there's a ton of them. I mean, our industry is blessed with a lot of people who are in love with radio, passionate about it, and stand behind it. That's why radio is as powerful as it is. It's not just the power of audio. It's the power of people behind the audio yeah. that makes radio so incredible. So, um, But we're very lucky. We're very lucky to know these gems. And I would say, especially given the last handful of months and how tumultuous they've been, leadership and strong leadership has never been more important. 
It's great leaders are made in times of, of crisis. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, and I am really impressed and I've watched very closely about how you have done it. Uh, and you and I have obviously, you know, have several phone calls about it and just trying to stay positive, but also authentic and real with, with, with our teams. Um, I've been privy to uh, Peter and some of his communications and just what a phenomenal job he has done. And my question really for you as we're wrapping this up, what is some of your advice uh, for people listening to this on how to uh, lead and get through this time? Um, Excellent question. And frankly, that's that's exactly what's on my heart uh, to ensure that we wrap it up with that conversation and and with that tone. I think leadership, whether it's in government, in business, private sector, or at home, uh, are all the same. You had to hear with everything that's going on in the news about experts, family uh, experts, psychologists saying, parents, please do the best you can to conceal your stress, your anger, your frustrations in front of your kids. You know, if, if, if you need to vent and get it off your system, either do it with each other privately and protect the kids, do it outside, but don't do it in front of the kids because just like COVID-19, so is anger and stress and negative emotions are also extremely contagious. So if the parents are constantly arguing, expressing their frustrations, what a dark place we're in, damn it, blah, 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 all that immediately is passed down to the kids and you're ruining their attitudes, their uh, mental health, and their ability to cope with what's going on. Take it out of the family unit now and carry it to a small business. Same damn thing. Take it to a mid-sized business. Same damn thing. Take it to a massive Fortune 500 company. Same damn thing. Take it to government. Same damn thing. Leadership, anybody can be a leader. Anybody can call themselves a leader. And you can be, by the way, a brilliant leader coming up with brilliant ideas and brilliant businesses and make crap load of money. But true leadership skills come in when there's a poop storm. Mm -hmm. How big is your umbrella? How wide is it? How well are you protecting yourself and the people that you're responsible for? So I will close with this. We're spending way too much time at a time like this when we are smack in the middle of a war, an information war, where it's almost impossible to hear the truth because there's so much noise. We're spending way too much time on figuring out where the light at the end of the tunnel is. We keep talking about the light at the end of the tunnel. Where is the light? Is it coming any minute now? Is it around the corner? How fast can I get to that light? You've got to get out of this tunnel. What we need to do is just shut up, pause, and figure out how to manage the tunnel itself. How do we adapt to the tunnel that we're in? Because I don't know where the light is yet. Is this over? Is it phase two? Hey, let's all celebrate. Business is back. Up oh, a month later. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. The second wave just came in. We're going through another lockdown. Oh, are you really prepared for that? If you ask my opinion at this point, no, we're not. We're so vulnerable. We're so pissed off, rightfully so, 
that our liberties have been taken away from us, our money has been taken away from us, our employees have been taken away from us. I don't give a damn. I am just getting out there, right? That's the general attitude, whether we say it or not. What we need to do is pause, take a deep breath, and master the art of living in the tunnel, whether it's for another month or another six months. Because if we can do that, imagine how awesome we are going to be when we get to the light at the end of the tunnel. Phenomenal advice. I am so grateful for you taking the time, man. Uh, and those last sentiments were just incredible. And I, I, I agree with you. I never thought about it that way, but I think you're absolutely right. We've got to get acclimated to being in that tunnel and gain strength while being in it, and then we're able to emerge. Exactly. Yaman, thank you. You are uh, a, a true friend, an inspiration, and uh, just it's been a pure pleasure taking this time, and thank you for sharing your, uh, your story. I'm honored uh, to do this with you. Thank you, Chachi. You know I love you. Love you too, buddy.